A lot of people probably were having health issues due to absinthe, but a lot of that had to do with a bad, badly fabricated absinthe, um, people drinking too much, you know, not diluting it with enough water, just like, you know, what might have been happening in Gin Alley in London, you know, during those times, like people were drinking bathtub gin. And of course they're going to die because you are not a professional distiller, sir. Please don't make your own bathtub gin because you can die. Um, So, but they didn't have the internet back then to read those articles about people who die from their own moonshine. So, Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. If I said to you the green fairy, what would come to mind? No, it's not something out of Lord of the Rings trilogy, but instead a drink that has become more known around the world for the myths associated with it than the actual drink itself. And of course, there's the Kylie Minogue singing The Hills Are Alive as the Green Fairy in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge movie, which is still my favourite movie of all time. Today, we are going to bust those myths and find out the true history of absence, this mythical drink that has become popular throughout Europe and France. To help us do that, we are joined by someone who knows their stuff when it comes to alcohol and cocktails here in France, Forrest Collins. Forrest is a cocktail expert and founder of 52 Martinis, which is a guide to Paris cocktail bars. Forrest, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thanks for having me. Forrest, before we get into absinthe, you grew up and lived most of your childhood in Seattle. Looking back at that time, how different do you think uh, life for a childhood, child growing up in Seattle would be to life growing up in Paris? Oh, I think, my goodness, I guess, you know, I think there are uh, there's similarities in that both both places really enjoy their food, but in different ways. I think there's a, a lot more of a focus on sort of like a a kind of a healthy, outdoorsy, kind of, you know, natural thing in Seattle when it comes to food. And, you know, in France, I think that the children are going to grow up and they're going to be used to eating things like escargot and things with sauce and, and heavier things and and more traditional things. I think especially, you know, I don't know what it's like for children today, but if you look maybe back at my childhood, um, things were probably a little bit more when you were eating and drinking, like the selection was more vast and bringing in more different cultures. France has, you know, very, uh, it's very closed in certain ways. It's only been in the last 10 years that you see a larger variety of different kinds of um, cultures coming into play when it comes to food, except for classics that have always been here. But um, so I think, yeah, more traditional um, in terms of what you consume and a little bit more broader and, and kind of with this health nut focus in Seattle. And do you think that if the forest that grew up in Seattle had instead grown up in Paris, would you still be in Paris or would you be in Seattle? Hmm, probably Paris. I think I'd still be in Paris. I was always going to end up here. You've lived in Texas, uh, Hawaii, Rhode Island. Um, I mean, these are all fabulous places. Uh, which would be your favourite? Oh, well, you know, Hawaii, I think all the places are great, right? But a lot of these places I lived when I was younger, and some of them I've gone back to visit, but some of them you you look through them through kind of the glasses of the past, right? So, um, so you know, Hawaii is it's it's such an idyllic place to be. It's island life at its, you know, at its finest, at, but also most accessible. So you're not too remote, but you're still remote enough. You know, you're far enough from the mainland and it's beautiful beaches. I mean, it's just, it's, it's yeah. Paradise. 
It's interesting you said the mainland. So is the US the mainland? Like in Australia, we've had, we've got Tasmania, but I mean, obviously, like Tasmania's a lot closer to Australia than it is, uh, than Hawaii is to the US. Do they, do they see it that way? Hawaii? Absolutely. They, absolutely. Yeah, right. You say, I'm going to the mainland. I mean, yeah, you definitely talk about mainlanders and going to, it's definitely. Yeah. And what's the food scene like in Hawaii? Oh, God, I haven't been back for so long. Like, you know, when I was there, it was like lots of like bento boxes, lots of Korean food. You know, we always had kimchi in the house, different kinds of sushi. So like, obviously, all kind of like Pacific influences and, and um, you know, and pork, obviously, kind of the luau sort of pork and, um, you know, all these different kinds of, of uh, tropical fruits and tropical vegetables. But I really do need to get back because I'm sure there's a lot more interesting things happening now than, you know, since I've been back over, you know, probably 15 years or 20 years ago was the last time I was there. Well, that's interesting. That brings me to our next question, which was going to be, would you live there again? Oh, um, probably not because I think some places are better for either vacations or retirement, but I just think it's too remote. Like, I just don't think I'd get that, um, the thing that I was talking about that I appreciate more now in Paris, which is this wider range of experiences from a culinary standpoint, but also from just a general like cultural standpoint. But also it's not just that. I mean, I think, you know, island life does get very, you know, it just gets insulated. You know, I think that, um, you know, I was talking to somebody about this recently because I just spent time in both Iceland and Ireland. And, you know, somebody was asking in Ireland, you know, do you feel like an Islander? And I, I feel like in both of these places, there is definitely this sense of of insulation where people may internally think that they're um, feel creative and do all these creative things, but also there's definitely a homogeny that you don't find um, in in Europe or in you know in other um, larger places. I mean, I guess every every continent is an island in some sense, but I'm talking about these smaller ones. If you get what I mean, what's your favorite food memory growing up? Oh, um, I really like. Um, comfort food. I really like Southern comfort food. So fried okra is one thing. Um, I was born in Texas. And even though I have not spent in many formative years there, I do go back because a lot of my family's there. So things like fried okra, like that is something that kind of takes me back to my childhood. And even not just fried okra, just okra, like in jars, like it's kind of slimy and people don't really like it so much. But, but that like, takes me back to to my youth. And also, um, even though I'm not a big fan of pies, like some of my favorite food memories revolve around, you know, Thanksgivings and things like this, where my aunts would make lots of pecan pie and that kind of thing. So I've never had a pecan pie. Oh, you should. I know. I need to have one. They're I super do. sweet. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're like, oh, diabetes inducing, but they're good. Okay. Many Americans come to live and dream of living here in Paris or France. When did you first think about that you wanted to live in France? I, from a very young age, uh, and I think that's why I was thinking I'd always end up in Paris. Uh, I had this poster in my bedroom for as long as I can remember, and it was this chateau in France. And, uh, you know, and so I think I, I often think back to that, you know, I would look at it and I would think one day I'll get there. So, you know, it's a romantic notion that lots of young Americans have, young American girls, this, you know, fantasy of chateau in Paris, uh, and so I think I just sort of fell prey to the same romantic notions that many people do, but I was stubborn and I followed through. So early, early on. So the France dream was the Chateau. Did you get that France dream then? 
Well, I mean, obviously I don't live in a chateau yet. Don't tell Tebow I might be on the lookout for a different husband. Um, no, I, but I did, I got the dream. I mean, you know, okay. Nobody wants to be responsible for a whole chateau. So I got like the castle in the sky dream for me, which was, I live in France. That's amazing. And not only do I live in Paris, I, you know, I look out my, you know, my nice Paris apartment. I can lean out the window and see the Eiffel tower. And, uh, and I also, you know, we just recently bought a house in the country. So again, not a chateau, but it is a chalet and it's, you know, it's my chateau. So I did, I did get that dream. But I, I didn't just luckily get it. I worked really hard to get that dream. It didn't fall on my lap. People always say that, you know, never buy a boat, that you're just sinking money into it all the time. I kind of think French chateaus are the same things. Absolutely. It seems so good in theory, but like, you know, the reality is not quite what you expect. So, yeah. We don't all have a television production crew behind us giving <laughs> us money to renovate our chateaus. No. Nope. Nope. No. How important is French food? to you? Very important. I, well, I like food in general, right? So it's not like, you know, but French is, is very high on the priority list for me because one, I live here and I don't want to be one of these, uh, expats or immigrants that come and just try to create a bubble around myself and separate myself from the culture. And, um, I recently actually became French. So, you know, I really think it's important to celebrate part of what, you know, I'm trying to take on as part of my culture. I don't want that to be just an administrative thing I did. I want to, you know, you know I'm French and American now, but it's also really damn good French food, right? So it's important to me because, you know, I'm talking about those comfort foods. Well, you know, get me on a boeuf bourguignon. I love to make that. Like cassoulet is one of my specialties. Um, so all of these old granny French foods, I make a pretty good, if I do say so myself, like, um, pâté de campagne. So, it's super important for me to discover cultures through food. And, you know, that's just because I like to eat. But also I think that um, it is it is an interesting pathway into understanding people. Yeah, absolutely. The the food traditions especially, but just even just sitting at a table and oh, having sure. people over. Yeah. And I think there is a little bit of a, a myth in regards to the French. When we were first arrived here, a lot of people said to us, you'll never be friends with your neighbours. Whereas... All of our French neighbours that we've ever had have come over for dinner and, and we've gone to their place and we are in their lives and, and some of our best friends. Do you have that similar experience? Um, it's Well, I feel like I have a secret weapon because I'm married to a Frenchman, right? So, uh, so, But I did live here for a long time before I was married to him. Uh, and I didn't really, like my neighbours didn't care for me too much. You know, I was the foreigner in the building, but that was in Paris. Um, and then when we moved in together, I made a real effort to meet people in our apartment building and we do sort of like a annual come on up and have a drink. So we sort of do in Paris. However, in the countryside, the people can't stop inviting us around. And I think that's because Thibaut has a secret weapon, which is me. I think in the countryside, they love the fact that let's get that crazy American woman over. She seems really bonkers and she's foreign and unusual and different. So, so we are having a great time with our neighbors in the countryside. Our neighbors immediately to us, they, they're constantly talking to us over the fence, having us over for lunch and apparel. So, so I've had pretty like it, 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 both, both sides of the coin experience with that. 
So you've moved to the countryside. What prompted the move? Well, we originally wanted a weekend home and, uh, you know, just kind of get away. Like we feel like we're of a, a certain age now, you know, like a, the age where it's t- time to spend the weekends in the countryside. And um, so that was the plan. That was just right before COVID. And then COVID hit and we just spent our entire confinement in the countryside. And so now we're really half and half and I love it. It gives me this really nice um, opportunity to like make sure I stay on top of like food and drink and all of that in Paris, but then just like escape out to the country and be like my normal introvert self all weekend long. I love it. (laughs) And whereabouts are you? We're in Le Perche. So we are, um, we're near uh, our biggest town is Senonche. So we're kind of on the closer part of Le Perche to Paris. A lot of the really sort of hipster and bobo and trendy stuff that's happening there now is on the other side of, on the farther side of Le Perche. But it's a great area. It's, it's kind of, we're almost on the Normandy border, about an hour and a half south uh, west-ish of Paris. You have a very successful blog, 52 Martinis, devoted to cocktail bars in Paris. What was the inspiration for this? Um, It was mainly because I personally, it was just personal need. Uh, I was really, after a few years here, I always liked cocktails, moved here, no real cocktails, but all the wine, I mean, and the prices on the wine, fabulous. So I forgot about cocktails while I was like, glug, glug, all this like cheap French wine. And, but then, you know, after a while, I'm like, okay, I, I do want cocktails in my life. So I'm going to start this like very methodical search throughout Paris to try to find someplace that does them. So I was going on this weekly, like, you know, cocktail adventure and pulling in a few friends. And as it progressed, I had more friends coming over from the U S visiting saying, where can I go? What, what can I do? And I was tired of having this conversation every time Well, I went to this bar, I went to that bar. So I started a blog because it's a really a natural way to categorize and organize information and then share that out. So it was just for me sharing with my friends. It was never meant to get, go be, go much more beyond that. I mean, it's great that it did. And I'm glad that it's been useful and, you know, kind of on the forefront of the cocktail revolution in Paris. So that's been awesome. Um, so that was the inspiration. I mean, you know, it's, it's less useful now because now there's cocktails everywhere, but um, that's, it was really just for me and my friends in the beginning. And did you have a writing background? Is that, was that a part of the inspiration for doing a blog? Well, I do have some, a bit of a writing background just because, you know, in the past I've done writing, different writing about food and, and drinks for, you know, different Paris websites, et cetera. And I've taken different various writing classes and I've always been part of a writing group here in Paris, um, sort of a casual writing group. And I've just always been interested in writing. So, you know, while I would say I'm not really a professional writer because that's not where I put my focus on my money-making at the moment. Um, I definitely have a, a, a strong writing background and interest. And then the blog turned into a podcast. So you yeah. pivoted really, which I love. I love people that pivot. Uh, who's your fondest guest that you've had on the podcast? Oh, well, I mean, everybody loves David Leibovitz, right? So it's hard not to say he's like an awesome guest. It's also fun because I like it when I have guests on and I could just have a really fun conversation with them. And all of my guests are great. And so you can always have a good conversation with them. But some of them I don't know personally. So it's more of a, okay, I'm going to interview you about Calvin. Tell me about this thing. So David is a really fun one. Um, and uh, I also, your last guest, 
Tanisha is also a really super fun guest. She's also a good friend of mine. So it's really a pleasure to have her on as well as kind of pick her brains about, you know, her knowledge. You know, I had her on talking about um, being black and being a woman in the wine industry in France, which, you know, has got to have its own set of challenges. And, you know, just being a foreigner already is got its own challenges, but adding those extra levels. So, um, so those are, those are two that just come to mind, but I've had so many awesome guests like, um, that I can't even like name them all. I've had a lot of good guests around Tiki and I, I'm just going to stop there. I just, all my guests, all my guests are awesome. Fabulous. Well, yes, Tanisha was a fabulous guest and um, I've yet to interview David, but I do um, recall that he had during, um, I think it was during confinement, he was doing some fabulous cocktail live streams or something along those lines. He was, yeah. He was doing those um, IGTV live streams and people loved them um, and they're fun. Like he's fun. People love hanging out and talking to him. He's a fun guy to talk to and engaging to watch. So yeah. Do you have a favorite cocktail bar in Paris at the moment? Oh, um, that's always a tough question because, you know, it changes and et cetera, but I'm really loving at the moment Le Tout Paris, which is the cocktail bar attached to the restaurant that is on the newly reopened Samaritan. Um, you know, the, the Cheval Blanc, which is the, sorry, I just dropped something. It's Cheval Blanc, um, which is the hotel attached to Samaritan. They've got restaurants and bars on top and Le Tout Paris has this beautiful view. They've got this amazing cocktail menu. Um, I'm very much loving that one at the moment. Um, but you know, I've got a lot of other kind of just places that I like to go and, you know, now I'm drawing a blank of course, but, um, but that's my favorite at the moment. I always give a tip for people that are going to Singapore. It's another one of my favorite um, places because the food is amazing there. When you go there, you can go on top of, like uh, I think it's Lasands or something, the building there, the three buildings with the pool on it. You could pay to go up there and do the viewing platform or you can just go for free to the bar and have a cocktail for the same price. So is there any kind of experience like that in Paris that is where, you know, you're better to go to a bar than to actually go to the to pay and and go to um, the touristy experience, so to speak. Is there anything like that in Paris? There, there is the Tour Montparnasse. They've got the bar on top, and um, so my advice is to plan ahead because now they've really they revamped it a little while ago, and there's much more restaurant space. So there's limited bar space, but if you plan ahead, call make a reservation. Um, same thing, same price. You go up to the top of the Montparnasse. You've got a great view of the Eiffel Tower. Um, the drinks aren't that expensive. They do, you know, I don't recommend getting too um, out there with your cocktails because I think their cocktails are are good enough. But, you know, do a spritz, do a glass of champagne. That's what I normally do when I go up there. And uh, and you get a glass of champagne and your view. So it's awesome. You came to France in 2001, I think it was, so 20 years ago now. Yeah. How different is the Paris cocktail bar scene back then to now then? Totally different. I mean, you know, like I said, when I came here, I couldn't get just a regular dry martini anywhere. Anytime I went out, uh, I would ask for one and I would get, you know, what the French drink, which is the sweet vermouth that's made by martini. So that's a very typical French aperitif, this just a glass of the sweet vermouth with a little slice of lemon in it, which is far and away different from what my martini is, which is basically gin with a splash of dry vermouth. So um, I would order these and then I would I would specify, you know, dry martini and they'd still come back. The, I, I mean, the first many posts on my blog were really about a lot of bad martinis. And 
as things progressed and, and Paris kind of picked up on this, um, you slowly, you would see martinis on the menu. And now I can go, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens, if you know, not, not a hundred plus places in Paris and, and get a, a good martini and great in some places. So drastically different. Um, you know, cocktails just weren't a thing. Like they were an American thing that you would see these bad cafes that would say American bar or cocktails and you'd go in and you'd just get a mojito. That would be your only option. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's changed in terms of the bottles on the back bar. I was just in this place last night. Um, it's called Marty and I thought I'm going to check out the cocktails. They look good on Instagram and the place is just really like a standard corner cafe. And normally I'd see just, you know, in that kind of location, just a few bottles, but now I'm like, oh, they've got like five, six different gins behind the bar. So yeah, they've really like, they've really come around with this whole cocktail renaissance that we've, we're seeing globally, but that started basically in the US and a bit in London. You talked before about um, wine and, and how cheap it is here in France and you can get great wine for a good price. Does that have something to do with the reason why cocktails maybe took a little bit long to, to catch on here? I think that absolutely will have something to do with it. And again, it's just that traditional side of France, right? Unless they're starting the trend, they're not really going to be quick to pick up on it. So, you know, cocktails were slow to come here. Um, craft beer was slow to come here. Um, you know, even this idea of drinking cider, which is a French product, but, you know, it, the popularity of cider, which has been happening in Spain and in the US, you know, it's, it's, it's only now kind of rejuvenating with younger people creating new cider brands like Appy and, um, Oh, I forget the other one that's that's very popular and started by sort of a, a younger crowd. But um, so I, I, I think wine. Why why go for why spend fifteen bucks on a cocktail when you can spend five bucks on a really good glass of wine? You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways to do this. The first, and by far most possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts, be that Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Also, leave a review and a rating. A five-star rating would be fab and very appreciated. Financially, you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming a Patreon member. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can become a Patreon member that receives exclusive content just for you. I'm currently rejuvenating the options on Patreon, so stay tuned for that. But not everybody can support monthly, so if you'd like to, you can do a one small off payment via the Buy Me A Coffee website, where you can actually just buy me a croissant. Both the Patreon and the Buy Me A Croissant links are in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to Fabulously Delicious. And now let's get back to our chat with Forrest Collins, where we learn all about the magical elixir that is elixir, not alexia. Sorry if I've just turned on anybody's Amazon. That is absinthe. On to our topic today, which is absinthe. We, we've got a lot, of, lot to cover. But first things first, I want to talk about where does the actual drink derive from it's a plant i think is that right oh it's a plant. oh well it's a it's a base neutral spirit and it is um so what does that mean a base neutral spirit so it's it's um something it, so that's like it's like vodka or it's like gin and it's a spirit that's distilled from a base product and so in most cases it's like potatoes for vodka but it can be grains it can be anything it's just a it's a it's a it's 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 base alcohol so um 
So it's uh, um, I can't pronounce it. I'm looking at it now. Ab- absinium, absinthe. Ab- I can't. You're talking it. about the uh, Art- Artemisia absinthium. I, I also it. can't pronounce it. But you're talking yes. about the wormwood, which is the major um, botanical, the, the grand wormwood that is 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 one of is basically what makes it absinthe. Uh, absinthe has this grand wormwood, which is it's a plant, and um, generally anise and fennel in there. Those are the, kind of the three. Let's get that triad in there. That's going to make it absinthe. And uh, and then there's some other botanicals and herbs that can go in depending on the person's recipe. But absinthe is a space spirit with these three botanicals. So this absinthium is also in other drinks as well. So it's not just in absinthe, it's in uh, yeah. bitters. Is that right? It and can be in bitters. I mean, it depends on the, yeah, it depends on the recipe for sure. I mean, it depends on the bitters recipe, the vermouth recipe, but it's it's an, it's an, a botanical that could be infused into any, I mean, it could be in gin, you know, I mean, there's, there's no like limitations onto what can be added in addition to juniper to gin. So sure, um, it could be in other things as well. Where did uh, absinthe originate from? Well, um, like lots of cocktail and spirits things, there's there's a little bit of murkiness to it, but it's pretty much commonly accepted that it w- originated in um, Switzerland in the late 1700s. Uh, people say it was a doctor, Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, who created it, who was a French doctor in Switzerland. Um, and he created it as also many things, you know, around cocktail and spirits. He created it as a health elixir. So not as something to see a green fairy, but something to, right, to, to improve your health. So all these tonics back in the day were often started that way. They were created by pharmacists, physicians to lift your spirits, uh, if you will. So that is, that's pretty much the accepted theory on, on the origins of it. Although I've read that, you know, you have these sort of, um, warm wood instilled drinks that were, you know, being created and distilled and prepared like back in Egyptian times, but I have not gone that far back in the history of it. So, um, I will leave that to my users to consult professor Google on, but that my, my reading has, um, yeah, taken me there a little bit. So for those of us that don't know a lot about spirits and things, so if absence is made from this osinium, then so what's uh, gin made out of? Is that the same? Well, so when you say made out of it, um, I, just to clarify for listeners, because I think sometimes it's, it's not confusing. So gin and absinthe and vodka, um, you know, they could all be made from the same base, which could be like potatoes or it could be rice or it could be quinoa. And so those things are fermented Um they're, you know, they're mashed and fermented and, and then a, a, a spirit is distilled from them. And I'm not a distiller. So uh, if, if any distillers are listening, I know I'm not using all the proper terms, but a spirit is um, distilled from them, you know, using one of these big stills. And so then you have this just like basic alcohol, like it's like rubbing alcohol, right? It's just like, it's created from this base product, which is not the wormwood that you're talking about, the absentium. Um, and then that product like in the case of gin that product is put together with um with juniper berries and then other different botanicals according to the recipe with vodka it's usually just left alone and then with absinthe it's mixed with the the wormwood and the anise and the fennel and then other botanicals as well so um so they 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 could be all made from the same base and to be totally honest i haven't read the european regulations which are very dry reading on absinthe so they may have some restrictions on what you make the base spirit from but all all of these different white spirits like this uh, i know absinthe can also be green but all of these can be made from anything that creates the alcohol it's the botanicals that you mix with after uh, that 
give it the flavor. So sorry for that little detour. I think I derailed you. So no, 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 no. That's fabulous. It has a French nickname, which I think relates to this green fairy. Is that right? La, yeah. What's it? I can't. La fée verte. La fée verte. Right. Your French pronunciation is amazing. Is fantastic. Oh, Can I? No, nah, it's not what Chibo says. But thank you. I'll tell him that you told me that. I'll play this podcast for him. See, it's proof. I can pronounce things. Exactly. There is a lot to be said about the – there is a lot said, actually. Sorry, I should say. There's a lot said about the drink being banned. And I want to talk about this. There's two parts, I think, or two theories as to why it was banned. And the first is uh, about the chemical compound in the drink, that it supposedly contributed – uh, you know, to this, uh, it being bad. Is this true? Is there, was it really a, a hallucinogenic drink? No. And I think that that's the biggest misconception, but also probably the biggest marketing advantage for um, absinthe because people love the idea that it's going to make them see the green fairy. Absolutely not. So people talk about thujone, which is a chemical compound that's in, um, in the grand wormwood, uh, being this, um, not good for you, hallucinogenic, et cetera. And so they, they said that you could not create these spirits with thujone in it because it's going to make you hallucinate. It's terrible for you. Um, it's not true because thujone is, is, is something that's found in many other things like chartreuse or, um, uh, you know, other things that you drink. And also if you take three sage leaves, that has the same amount of thujone as like a whole bottle of absinthe and you're never going to sit and drink a whole, right? So, so it's, you know, it was just sort of this, um, uh, not red herring, but anyway, they just this, this scapegoat that that they were blaming. But you know, they they there's nothing to that. I mean, we're back to making the same kind of absent that they were making pre pre ban with the same levels of everything in it, and nobody's going crazy. So the thujone does not make you hallucinate or go crazy. So I do remember a night when I put way too many sage leaves in my pork <laughs> roast, and um, there was some happening things going on afterwards. That explains uh, it now. That mm. that explains it all. Blame it on the same sage leaves sage every leaves. time. Yep. The absolute. Yep. That's it. Um, and so the other theory revolves around uh, prohibition and conservative governments banning the drink. Is this possibly more a believable theory? Yeah, I mean, it is possibly more of a believable theory um, because, you know, absinthe also, it's very high in alcohol. So it's, you know, it's higher in alcohol than your standard gin or vodka. You're supposed to be diluting it with quite a bit of water. So, you know, perhaps, I mean, um, you know, in the US, there was a lot of prohibition around everything right so um and uh in france it wasn't uh, the common belief is that it was really more of the wine lobbies that were pushing this right they were using absinthe as a scapegoat because um they wanted people to be drinking wine and not other spirits you know it's it's also that it was kind of a bad target because people, even though it was very popular in the day and popularized by artists, people weren't necessarily drinking a lot more absinthe than they were drinking other spirits aside from wine. But a common belief is that the wine lobbies in France were pushing really hard to make this ban happen for these kind of fake reasons that it makes you go crazy. It's bad for the health. Um, but, you know, and, and a lot of people probably were having health issues due to absinthe, but 
a lot of that had to do with a bad, badly fabricated absinthe, um, people drinking too much, you know, not diluting it with enough water, just like, you know, what might have been happening in Gin Alley in London, you know, during those times, like people were drinking bathtub gin. And of course they're going to die because you are not a professional distiller, sir. Please don't make your own bathtub gin because you can die. Um, so, but they didn't have the internet back then to read those articles about people who die from their own moonshine. So, so, you know, so there was not any truth to it, but yeah, people were having a problem, but the problem wasn't really absinthe. It was home distillations or badly distilled products. And then the wine lobby pushing that behind that, using it as a, reason. And so you mentioned prohibition before, and we do hear a lot of, about prohibition, but mainly with America is where it's sort of, you know, uh, we hear a lot of what is uh, prohibition or what was prohibition? Well, I, I mean, prohibition was, um, it, uh, it was no longer legal to um, sell or sell. And I don't know if it, consuming is under the law or not, but, you know, it was no longer legal to make or sell alcohol. And, um, you know, and that lasted for what, 10, 10, throughout the twenties for 10 years or so. Um, and however it was, there were some, um, kind of loopholes, right. You could still do it for medical reasons. Um, and, and it wasn't just in the U S like there was quite a prohibition, I believe in Canada and, um, and, in other countries as well. I don't know if there's ever been one in Australia, but, um, but I know in a few other countries that there have been. So uh, yeah, it's like basically a ban on alcohol. I don't know if we had prohibition in Australia, but I do know that in the area that I lived in, in Melbourne, actually, it was known as a dry area. And it still is to this day. There's, you can tell by the fact that on one side of uh, a road that is a boundary for this area, on one side of the road, there are bars and pubs. And on the other side of the road, there aren't. There are still places like that in Texas as well in the US and maybe other other states in, in the US. I don't know because it's all dictated by state law. Uh, but yeah, there's still... Um, entire counties where you, um, where that are dry, where you can't buy alcohol and you have to have a special, some kind of a special permit to drink a glass of wine in a restaurant there. So yeah, I mean, you still have different, you still have different ways of moderating people's drinking, right? Like prohibition was the great experiment is what they call it that didn't work, but you know, there's temperance movements and there's places that like, you know, Norway, they uh, control their drinking by making it really, really crazy expensive. So, you know, I mean, there's different ways that people still try to control what we drink because, you know, Drinking is poison at, at, at the base, and yes. it could be dangerous. Mm. So, uh, do they have prohibition in France? Do we? Know? I don't know of a prohibition in France. I was thinking about that as I was talking. I'm like, I should know this, but I really don't think that they. I mean, if I don't know it, that I think that they haven't. But again, you know, this whole ban on absinthe, right? This was like their way of controlling drinking, and and not just um, you know controlling drinking, but funneling the drinking to the um, to the area that they wanted to, i.e., the wine that had you know, the winemakers, which, you know, probably had bigger lobbying power. In Australia, we get a lot of ads about, um, you know, not drinking when you're driving. It's, you know, it's obviously illegal and it's, and it's obviously illegal here in France as well. But you don't hear much about that here. I'm starting to hear more. I was just listening to something on the news, I think. Uh, and I do feel like, um, there's a little bit of lobbying happening again around, um, you know, um, this idea that, um, all cigarette packages here have these, um, pictures of lungs on them that are all diseased and whatever. And so I was just kind of out of the corner of my ear listening to some um, radio show that was talking about kind of proposing the same idea for alcohol and the idea that we need to remind the, you know, the, the grand public here that this is a, 
this can potentially be a dangerous substance. So, you know, to be consumed in moderation. And also, you know, for example, on my podcast, legally, I, I have to say at the end, um, you know, please drink in moderation because it's on a French radio station. I mean, it's in English, but, you know, um, so you don't hear about it. But I also don't think you have the same crazy drinking culture in France that you do maybe in a lot of Anglophone countries. I mean, you know, um, like I was just, uh, and I'm not not a stereotypical thing, but I was just in Ireland. I'm like, I, you know, would never see people drink as much in France, just out socially as I do there. I take that to back to the U.S. as well, right? Like you just don't see people. Um, I would guess Australia, maybe Canadians are a little bit more, you know, reasonable than, than the other Anglophones. But, uh, but I think that French people um, have in general, a different relationship to alcohol. And I think that's changing with the younger generation. And that's why I'm hearing more now about this, this regulation. So, um, so you're right. You don't hear as much about it here, but I think it's starting to come up more. Getting back to absinthe, the EU lifted its barriers to production and the sale of absinthe. Now there are apparently over 200 different brands of absinthe. How do we find the best one? Yeah, I think that, um, and especially my understanding is a lot of the ones that are made in Europe now, you're right, that's a great question. How do you find the best ones? Because a lot of them that are made, they're basically like flavored vodka. I mean, it's the same thing. We're looking at this base spirit. They're throwing in enough wormwood to call it absinthe, but then they're throwing in caramel, whatever kind of thing that turns it into a gateway spirit for you know young palates that can appreciate the more challenging aspects of absinthe. It's very hard to find the good ones. I think that you have to go with really, reputable um names you know so like for i think if you really want to get into absinthe then you really start have to start doing the research but i think you can go for something like kubler which is a swiss absinthe which i think is a very good entry-level absinthe or i also really like the um perno absinthe which is made by perno ricard so you can find it pretty easily everywhere and um it's been a while since I've talked to them about it, but you know, I think that this is an absinthe recipe that they uh, used when they were resurrecting their original recipe from many, many, many decades decades ago. And um, I'll send you a picture when we get off of this. But I'm actually looking at my bar right now, and I've got both the Kubler and the Perrineau, and there's a couple other, you know. Um, uh, uh, reputable names. I think once you want to start getting into um, getting into it more seriously. Um, then you want to, there's some, you know, interesting websites around absinthe and, and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I can send them to you for show notes. Some that I refer to sometimes, um, that you can look to, uh, and, and there's also, by the way, some interesting absinths coming out of the U S I don't um, drink them as often, so I don't have recommendations for a specific one, but I think that you even have uh, a better percentage of good absinthe being produced in the U S than here in the, in the EU where there's just a lot of crap being made and has been being made for a long time in places where it wasn't banned, for example, like the Czech Republic. So anyway, long, that was a really long answer. Try, try Kubler, try Pernod and then do some research. Is it like other drinks that it has different tastes depending on where it's from or how old it is, or is it the same yeah, taste? I don't really find a difference um, in terms of age, but maybe my palate's just not that refined. But um, there are subtle differences, definitely, depending on who makes it, where it's made, how it's made, what other botanicals they put in there. It's a challenge for people to see these differences immediately because um, because it is such an intense, like the the wormwood and the, this this liquor she flavor is what people call it. It's not licorice, but you know, it's this real anise licorice fa- flavor that can be so overwhelming. So I think that, you know, 
you're really, if you want to taste some differences, you get a couple of bottles and you, you spend an evening with it and you have to really kind of work at teasing out the flavors, but some of them have more or less sugar as well. Right. So, um, some of them are sweeter and there's this, uh, tradition of, of dribbling the water on it through the sugar cube, but some of them don't even need that. And this is all just a matter of personal taste, but it's really dependent on the recipe that the, um, absinthe is made with, uh, that will determine that. Well, speaking of that, the dribbling of the water through the sugar cube, there are um, specially designed absence, absinthe, I can't speak now, I've got, a, I've developed a lisp while talking about absinthe. Um, there are specially designed absinthe spoons. So how do you actually drink absinthe? And why do you need a spoon? Well, um, you, I'm actually looking over at my fountain and my spoons as we speak. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't move my setup. I'd love to be showing you this at the same time. Um, I, um, you, you take your absinthe glass, which usually generally looks like a little goblet with a, with a, like a foot, a base to it, like a wine glass, but more gobbledy. You, you fill a few fingers of, of absinthe in there and then you balance the spoon, which is this metal spoon that kind of has enough ridges to let it balance on a glass and has holes in it. You balance the spoon on the top, you put your sugar cube on top of that, and then you put the whole thing under uh, usually if you have one, an absinthe fountain, which has, it's a jug of water with a little tap on it that you can just very slowly drip the water through the sugar cube into your absinthe. I don't generally put a sugar cube on my absinthe. So I just drip the water directly into the absinthe. Um, it's a shame because I love the spoons and I love all that paraphernalia that comes with it, but I don't use my spoons. They just are more decorative or for guests. But, um, but so basically the way you drink absinthe is you're taking, you know, one part absinthe to, you know, maybe five to seven parts water and you're slowly adding the water to it. Um, so that it um, becomes cloudy, which is called louching. So you just add the water slowly enough that it gently louches and becomes this sort of cloudy, opaque, white, green color. Wow. Okay. Are there uh, any cocktails that have absinthe in them? Yes, there are. Yeah, there's some classic cocktails that have absinthe. And generally, when a cocktail pulls an absinthe, it's a very, very light touch. So the Sazerac is, uh, you know, a cocktail that could be a very, very popular in New Orleans. And it's generally um, a cognac-based um uh, cognac based cocktail. Some people mix it part rye, part co- that's a whole different co- discussion, but we're going to just say cognac based, but you do an absinthe rinse. So you, you drop a few uh, drops of absinthe into the glass before you make the cocktail and kind of coat the glass with the absinthe. So it just barely kind of gives this little touch. Um, there's, a another, drink that was popularized by Hemingway. It's called Death in the Afternoon. It was invented by him, basically. <laughs> Fabulous name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, you know, Hemingway is going to not just take a glass of champagne. He's going to ask you to put in a shot of absinthe before you put the champagne in there. So um, it's a pretty sturdy drink that's champagne and absinthe. Um, there is a Corpse Reviver, number two, which is a big um, cocktail in the classic cocktail canon. And it... Um, also has a drop of absinthe. It's got gin. It's got, oh, I'm testing my memory here. It's got gin. It's got citrus. It's got um, uh, ch- cherry liqueur, maraschino. Um, and it's got, I think, uh, I want to say lilay. I can't remember. But it's this great equal parts cocktail. And then you drop a little bit of absinthe in there. So um, so those are just some classics that come to mind. And I think you know people are creating more and more uh, of them as well. And I have a, a recipe that I... Uh, took stole from actually a Perno recipe that I qu- use quite often with absinthe, which is the green beast, which is absinthe, um, 
water, lime juice, and it's infused with um, cucumber slices. But I turn that into a punch recipe. So that's something I serve quite often for parties and it's in a big punch bowl and people who even say, I don't like absinthe, they love it. Is there a particular time that we should be drinking this or is it a cocktail for, or is it a drink for all, all hours of the day? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you want to be drinking it over during the day, you want to be putting it in that punch form where there's lots of water and lots of dilution. But I think that's a great, like, you know, if get the girls around for a Sunday afternoon, like I think that would be a great time to be drinking it. Um, I think that it's really nice to have it as like an apero because it's it it really has a lot of the same flavor profile. They will say it's completely different, but trust me, listeners, you're going to find it very similar as um as pastis, right? So, and you know, think about pastis, you drink it with water, like uh, you know, as a as a cocktail hour thing, and and thinking that you're in Marseille. So, I think it works really well for that. Um, but yeah, and you could also do it late at night too. I mean, you know, it's fun just to sit and have this moment where you're watching the water drip the, from the fountain into your absinthe and, you know, kind of this contemplative moment after dinner with your friends. So uh, yeah, I think it works pretty well all throughout the day. What history is there that you could tell us about Paris in absinthe? Well, I mean, I don't know that I know any more history than just sort of this common knowledge thing that, you know, artists like Toulouse-Lautrec and all of these people that were kind of in the heyday of the Moulin Rouge, like this movie that you love, they were drinking it at the time, right? I mean, you have um, not just artists drinking it, but it depicted an artwork. So, you know, there's just been a long kind of um, link between the two. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm, this is not my area of expertise. I'm a, more of an expert in drinking it and knowing how it's made. But I also think that it's, it's rife for artistic interpretation because one, you could just sort of drink it all day and get, have this like nice buzz and work on your artsy work. But also there's like so much, um, ritual around it as well, right? With, with the, with the louching and looking for the fairy and this kind of louche and, and the spoon and the sugar. So I think that that's something that's, um, kind of art artists appreciate about it. Right. And also there's probably some ritual just around the time of day that they're doing it. So I'm actually just kind of like pulling that out of thin air, but, but that's my thoughts on it. With Paris cocktail bars is uh, now, is there anywhere in particular that we should go to have a, an experience of having our first absinthe in Paris? Yeah, I really like um, Lulu White because, um, you know, it's sort of a, it's, it's a modern way to have um, absinthe and they've got some nice fountains there and they used to have a little touch of absinthe in all their cocktails. I think they've kind of changed the menu slightly because not everybody is on board with that, but I would recommend that people go to Lulu White and talk to those guys. You know, there's, there's other places. I think there is a place called uh, L'Absinthe Cafe, but, you know, I, I, it's not one of my favorites. There was another one that just closed not too long ago. Can 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 um, which was the one that the one that was in the Anthony Bourdain um, No Reservation show where he went to visit the Absinthe Bar. That one's closed. So if anybody's looking for the Anthony Bourdain No Reservations one, not around. So I really like I, I like Lulu White for that. It's you know you're going to get a modern. Uh, but worthwhile interpretation, not this just sort of like cliched thing of what somebody thinks. Here's, you know, some crappy absinthe, but, you know, we're going to put it in this traditional Parisian cafe. I just wouldn't bother with that. And there's probably more, but I drink a lot of absinthe at home. So um, there may be more that I'm unaware of. Finally, Forrest, something new I'm asking everybody that's coming on Fabulously Delicious, and that is what's the most fabulous thing for you about life in France? 
Oh, uh, uh, like these, it's always hard to answer these questions the best, the most. Um, but I think, you know, I think this topic today touches something for me that is the most fabulous. Now, I love the architecture. I love the culture. I love all the things that everybody loves about France. So I'm not saying that these, those aren't fabulous, but what to me is really fabulous is the range of alcohol that you can get here now. Um, and not just because it's the range of alcohol, it's traditional, like their distilling knowledge here, distillation knowledge. You've got cognac, you've got Calvados, you've got Armagnac, you've got these things that are basically spirits of the cornerstone of so many classic cocktail recipes. They're from here. They're made here. And they're also applying that knowledge to newer spirits for France. Like, you know, 30 years ago, they started doing whiskey. You know, they've got now, you know, when I started writing about cocktails, they had three gins. Now they have a hundred. Um, it's not just the spirits. It's the, um, the liqueurs, like the Benedictine, right? You've got your Chartreuse, and all that history with the monks. And that's also amazing. You should get somebody on just to talk about that. Um, and so there's that, there's aperitifs, there's the sous, there's the beer, there's the, you know, there's, and then there's the wine. So like, we are so lucky to have such uh, you know, I really like to drink local when I can, and I can drink everything local except for things like tequila, right? Cause it has to be made in Mexico. But, um, but, um, but I mean, my God, like the quality and the options when it comes to spirits and alcoholic drinks are amazing. And also they have some pretty good tea, tea um, houses where you can buy some nice tea like Fauchon or Mariage Frère. So I don't drink coffee, so I don't know about that. But um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the spirits are amazing. Forrest, thank you so much for joining us today. We've learned so much about absinthe. And look, I think I will still try and drink as much as I can to find a green fairy, which won't be hard, I don't think. Carly comes into my dreams often because she's so fabulous. Thank you so much for teaching us all about absinthe uh, today on Fabulously Delicious. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a lot of fun. Great. Hopefully we'll get you back here again another time to talk all things French spirits, etc. Another day. With pleasure. What another wonderful chat with a fabulous Francophile. The very knowledgeable on all things French spirits and absence, Forrest Collins. Forrest, thank you for joining me on Fabulous Delicious. And if you, the audience, want to find out more about Forrest and her fantastic blog, 52 Martinis, then you can do so by checking out the link in the show notes for this episode. If you like this episode, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the podcast around with your family and friends. I love to be shared around. If you're planning on coming to France in the not too distant future, then why not help me make your trip even more fabulous? You can do this by booking in a one-hour Zoom call with me so that I can help you discuss and work out things to do, places to go, where to stay, how to get around, what to eat, where to eat it, and so much more. You can do this all via the link in the show notes for this episode or by checking out my website, andrewpryfabulously.com. In 2022, you will hopefully be able to come and join me in person for some fabulous cooking classes, so stay tuned for more information on that soon. I'm Andrew Pryor, and my motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me here every week on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Abiento and bon app. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. 
Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!